Hello, and welcome to Mental Health Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Lang, and I'm here with Dr. Mark Burton. In this podcast, we will talk about all things mental health. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey guys, Liz Lang here with Dr. Mark Burton, and this week we're going to talk about feminism and masculinity. So I think it's a good topic to discuss maybe just kind of from the aspect of how it's evolved over the years and kind of what it looks like today, maybe some of the benefits, some of the negatives that Mark and I might have noticed, and well, you're going to notice as you hear Mark talk that uh, his voice is a little more masculine I today. have a nice deep voice. I, I got a positive test for COVID yesterday. <laughs> Lindy and I went to four theater shows, so I, I'm certain I caught it over the weekend. But it's a mild case, and that's like a cold. And that's what yeah. it feels like in my chest is the cold. So I'm doing fine. Yes, which is good. And I mean, you will notice that uh, he sounds very manly that's today. That's <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to start off by talking kind of what I guess the modern definition of feminism is and masculinity. So Mark, why don't you go ahead and start? We'll do it this way. Tell me what you think of when you hear the word feminism. Oh, that is such a good question. Uh-huh. Um, I think of women who want to be treated as equals. Okay. And I think that's probably where it started. You know, that question caught me a little bit off guard because I was thinking in terms of toxic masculinity and toxic uh-huh. femininity. Yep. But that's a good idea. When I think of feminism, because years ago, this is a long time ago, I took a class. I can't even remember the class, but it was on feminism somehow. And it had to, it was tied into my research project back in when I was doing a master's degree. But I remember feeling like I couldn't say much in the class because there were maybe three to four males in the class and of maybe 20 to 30 and the rest were females. And it really felt uh, to me like I couldn't say what I thought. And mm-hmm. it was one of the first times I, at least my impression, I had to be careful about what I thought. Yeah. And so I think we live in a male-dominated world and I think we have for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So the idea of equality, I think, is an important one. Yeah. But like a lot of things, I talk to couples all the time about process. It's how we go about doing that. Yes. I think there are some good things that have happened, say, in the last 30 to 40 years that have, you know, made the sexes more equal, but they still aren't equal. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's pretty easy to see in statistics. I think we're getting closer but pay gap is still there between men and women doing the same job. I think the other thing in marriages with children, even though men are doing more, they still know women do the majority of the housework, even even when they're working. Right. So, you know, you have two income earners and both are out working. And I, I actually hear that often in mm-hmm. my office where that is one of the issues because it feels unfair. We can go into later what I think is driving this, at least from my perspective of who I see in my office. Mm -hmm. But I think women want a fair life and they should have one. And Mm -hmm. I I agree with that. So I think feminism is about that. Okay. It's about getting equality. 
Okay. And so when I hear feminism, I think of empowerment, I guess is kind of the word I equate with it. And I get what you mean from the perspective of taking that class in where you felt like you couldn't say anything because you're not a woman and so you can't understand the struggles that women go through. I don't care for that. I don't think that's fair because I think you can still see the the struggles that someone are going through. And yeah, you can't really completely understand. But I mean, I feel like you can still see their struggles and you can still have an opinion. And I think it's good to get an outside perspective on maybe common problems for women. You know, I mean, what do you think? What are your ideas? What do you feel about it? How does it affect you? I think it would just, it's it's more of a positive thing, I think. I Well, I think so too. It's just, it's, this was in a graduate setting at a university and often it, it I think it's even true nowadays. My take on it is that you're expected to be politically correct. And mm-hmm. so so if you say anything that is not, then that's not okay. Yeah. So, yeah. You, you know, you have, at least from my perspective, I and I'm still careful when I right. talk to other psychologists or academics mm-hmm. about certain subjects because it's often about that political correctness. Right. Yeah. Which is a very dominant feature in our society today is being politically correct. But I do like your word empowerment. Uh, And I think, you know, you're going at it a a slightly different way, because if you think about it, men have been the ones in power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the idea of uh, women getting empowerment makes a lot of sense because that then hopefully over time brings them to equality. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think the number one thing I think of, which was a I would almost say maybe the catalyst for the feminine movement is women's suffrage, you know, women's right to vote. I feel like that was a bit, that was a pretty big game changer. And we're going to get into this later, kind of what gender roles looked like even a hundred years ago or a little over a hundred years ago. And, you know, just how things have changed over just like the last century, maybe century Mm -hmm. and a half. I think that's going to be really interesting to discuss. So, One thing that I do want to say about feminism is, you know, and I I definitely agree with equal work for equal pay. And, you know, women, we should be treated as equal. We we should have equal say in everything. I mean, that's very much how my marriage runs, right? And, you know, maybe this stems a little bit from my religious background. I do want to own my, my bias there. But personally, I like the distinction of, I guess, maybe what you call classic feminism. Maybe this really is just my own definition of feminism, because to me personally, feminism, I think of, you know, maybe softer, nurturing, womanly, compassionate, I think those can still be feminine and those are important feminine aspects to me. And I recognize that they may not be to everyone, but that's something that I don't ever want to let go of because I mean, you know, being a mother is such a core part of who I am. And so nurturing, it's so intrinsic to me and I get immense value from it. I agree with that, but I don't know if you noticed this, that uh, when I was, you know, looking around for information on this, they're calling, or I don't know who they are, the, you know, the ambiguous they, uh, uh-huh. calling that toxic femininity, toxic feminism. And what they're referring to is women who are, they would say, stuck in that role, uh, those traditional role models. And so I didn't, I really didn't like that they, whoever they are, stuck that word toxic on the front of it, because I think more than anything, it ought to be a choice. Yes. 
that those roles, and I, I try and help couples understand this. You know, if you're talking about gender roles and, and you're in a marriage, you ought to be talking together and be a team mm-hmm. and decide. So if the female wants to be the one to stay at home and raise the kids, that is a very valid choice. That doesn't make it toxic. No, your toxic feminism. And, and so I, I had a real issue with that, but, you know, I think that um, there are some couples who want it more evenly divided, which also that, you know, that's fine too. It's just, Mm -hmm. you need to be able to have a healthy dialogue and come to a joint decision on that. Yeah, you know, and I like that we live in a world where it's perfectly acceptable for a woman to have a career. But I also I don't want women to be discriminated because they choose to go the motherhood route. And I yeah. certainly did. I mean, I was a stay-at-home mom for 9 years up until very very recently, and let me tell you, it was a full-time job. And in fact, when I started looking for employment, I did not put myself as unemployed. I put myself as self-employed. I just Mm -hmm. didn't get paid because, you know, it's very valid to be a stay-at-home mom. And I would, and I hope we never live in a society where that's frowned upon. And I also recognize that not all women want that. Like not all women even want to be a mom and that's okay. I mean, you know, I think I really like the way you phrased it, that it needs to be a choice. Like that's, I think that's probably one of the major things that can empower women and to make them equals is to just give them the choice and just support them in the role that they choose. Lindy is a great therapist, but she made the choice to, she was a stay at home mom. I'm not good at the math here, probably, Mm -hmm. you know, 15 to 20 years at least because there's a 10 year age gap between our oldest and the youngest. And she did not go back to school until Chase was, you know, over 10. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I sacrificed my education for my children. I only completed one year of college. And then our first daughter came along sooner than we originally planned. And so I put my education on hold. I don't regret that at all. And I knew when I got married that that was a possibility. I knew that you know, once we had kids that I would step away from the role of student and step into mom. And I'm, I was okay with that. I I was perfectly happy. I don't regret any way, shape or form putting off my education for my kids. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'll get to go back. I mean, I've still, I've got plenty of time. I mean, universities aren't going anywhere, but my kids are only little for so long. But, you know, I also admire women who graduated with kids you know, I think that's great that that women did both. And so, you know, I really like the idea of just women having a choice. Do what you want and society needs to just be okay with it. Just support mm-hmm. you. If you want to be, you know, a nurturer or if you want to be kind of like, I guess, maybe softer feminist, softer feminism, you know, maybe, maybe more the classic feminism role. That's okay. I don't think there's anything right. wrong with that. Right. So now let's do the same thing for masculinity. When you think well, of masculinity, <laughs> I know how to define masculinity is really tough. Yeah, because there are a lot of cultural expectations. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's true for women too. But I think men, when we raise men, we raise men certainly to. I think we used to anyway. To not be in touch with their feelings Mm -hmm. and to not be that concerned 
they are involved with relationships. And so that, I think, leads to those traditional gender roles as the man goes out, you know, like a 100, 200 years ago, the, the man's the farmer, he's out farming all day, or he's the rancher, and and the woman is at home with the kids and baking and mm-hmm. doing all that stuff. And so that's how they survived. Yes. But I think those role models then get passed down. Masculinity, I don't like the way a lot of men think about masculinity, but I'm giving you what I think, like if we had 100 men, what they might say. I think it's about suppressing their emotions is Mm -hmm. one thing. I think it's about being the breadwinner. I often hear that. And often couples come in and the man is, you know, so focused on work and they would call him a workaholic. And, you know, the wife wants more, wants to feel valued. But he sees his role often as the one being the provider. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, I think the the masculinity you go out, it's like the hunter-gatherer, yep. you know. And so a lot of this is evolutionary, certainly, that if we look at our ancestors, you know, 1,000, 10,000 years ago, it was probably more like that. Yeah. In fact, the interesting thing about, I, I was reading about, you know, history, what they think went on, say, forty to 50,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, this is just conjecture, right? Because, right, yes. <laughs> so it's not like we have a record. And so you have a lot of competing ideas. But one of the interesting things that I thought there's a one sociologist who believes that around 40 to 50,000 years ago, it's when, you know, Homo sapiens first started to have those gender roles. And this particular woman thought that it was one of the things that really propelled us as a species. Okay. That that it is, say, a defining feature, which, and she would say it was would be a really important feature because it helps you to, I think in some ways, and especially if you're looking 40 to 50,000 years ago, it helps you to be more productive, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. More efficient in what you're needing to do instead of this crossover where, you know, both men, men and women are having the same roles. Mm-hmm. And, a lot, and I think that's true nowadays too. And I see that with couples is that you divide the tasks and then it makes a lot of sense to some people. Mm-hmm. And for some people it doesn't, but so, you know, 40 to 50,000 years ago, and it is when that started to happen, where we got those gender roles starting to mm-hmm. come in is what they think. And I'm not saying this is what happened because we have no idea. Right. Well, and I would imagine, too, that it stems largely from just reproductive capacity. I mean, plain and simple, I think it just stems from women were the ones to bear the children and they then had to feed the children. I mean, because I would imagine that it was, you know, strictly breastfed back 40, 50,000 years ago. I don't know that there was any other way that they could have done it. They could have done it. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it would make sense for the women to kind of stay back and care for this baby that needs to eat every couple hours and the man would go out and provide. And so I think that's definitely from an evolutionary standpoint. Yeah, that makes complete sense. But I mean, it's certainly not the only way to do it today. There are many, many ways, thankfully, to do it today. I mean, you know, we thankfully live in a society where if there's no women around to care for a baby, like if there's not a woman available a man can just as easily step in to that role and provide for a child. And I think, you know, that's a really wonderful thing. So when I think of masculinity, I think of Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. 
Okay. <laughs> or at least, at least when I think of toxic masculinity, I guess. Okay. He's kind yeah, he of seems, a, a. He seems he's a, a little more toxic to me. Yeah. So I guess I should have prefaced it that way. When I think of toxic masculinity, I think very much of Gaston from Beauty and the Beast because he's a complete caricature of toxic masculinity. I mean, just through and through. I mean, you know, narcissistic thinks that he's God's gift to women and, you know, is so confused why Belle doesn't just swoon at his feet like everyone else does. But, you know, I mean, I guess aside from that, and maybe this is what my ideal masculinity or what I like in masculinity, you know, or maybe this is my preference of what I prefer. And so I very much think of, you know, a protector provider, mm-hmm. a leader. That's, I guess those are kind of some traits that I think of when I think masculine. Right. And so if you look at cultures, because there are some cultures throughout history, and I think we're talking mostly probably in Africa and primitive, primitive tribes, where if you look at masculine cultures, then they expect men to be more assertive, ambitious, mm-hmm. competitive, and to yep. strive for material success. And, you know, I think we've talked about in past episodes when we talked about testosterone, how our culture tends to reward men who are aggressive and mm-hmm. big, and strong, and fast. And but that's, I think, been the case for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And so women in masculine cultures, women are expected to serve and care for, you know, the quality of life for children of the week. Now, if and the week, and if you have feminine cultures, then those are defined by really more overlapping roles for the okay. second. And so in those cultures, men don't necessarily need to be ambitious or competitive, but they would go for a different quality of life completely. And so I wonder if what a lot of people are wanting, a lot of women, in, who, if we talk go back to feminism, is to get more to that place where we have overlapping mm-hmm. roles for the sexes. And honestly, I think it uh, works pretty well. Yeah. And I agree with that. I Well, and I think in today's culture, I think gender is a lot more fluid mm-hmm. than than it once was. I mean, you know, men can be very nurturing. They can be sort of softer. They can be more caring, compassionate. That's definitely something that men can be. You can be feminine. You can be more emotional and more in touch with your emotions. And women can very much be more masculine. You know, I mean, women, they can be strong. They can, you know, they can be a breadwinner. They can be assertive. They can show aggression. And that's more accepted. Right. And what I've found in my work with gay couples, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I think we can learn from gay couples, either gay males or lesbians, is their gender, well, I mean, if you think about it, they don't have those typical gender roles, right? right? They aren't going to be defined that way. And so necessarily they have to talk about it. Mm -hmm. They have to talk about it and decide what is going to be in that particular relationship. And I'm not saying I see any, any one way that is Mm -hmm. always the way it is in gay relationships. I don't. What I see is that they're more flexible in their roles. And I think we can learn a lot that from those that it's okay to be flexible in those roles. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that I wanted to mention was what are the influences then okay. in our culture today that shapes our ideas of feminism or femininity and masculinity? And I think there are, I mean, there are probably more than these, but here are four different things. I think media. 
Yes. Media has a tremendous influence on how we think of gender roles. I think economics does, and I'll go okay. into that. Education and workforce, which I think is pretty tightly tied to that economics. And then one you mentioned just a bit ago, religion. And mm-hmm. often religion is going to have, there are some religions, not all, but there are some religions who still have some fairly set guidelines or expectations, I guess you might call it, mm-hmm. as far as what the gender roles are. And so I think if, if we start with media, I don't know if I've ever, I, sometimes I do get on my soapbox and complain, but I think media is not good for people generally because and it's usually an advertisement mm-hmm. is where we see it. We talked about this, I think, in one of the recent ones about sex cells, you know, and yep. in one about sexuality. And so what we see are these idealized versions of women, or not, I don't know if they're idealized, they're they're what they think will sell whatever the product is, mm-hmm. but they tend to be like, if you do an analysis of, of TV, for instance, then they'll show women in mostly in the home doing mm. home type things. Yeah. And, you know, men are outside the home. It's rare that you're going to see an ad where the man is in the home doing the housework. Mm-hmm. But that's probably what they ought to have. But See, if you think about media, that's not their, I mean, that's not their target audience. It should be. I mean, who's going to buy the cleaning supplies? And I do in my house. I buy the yeah. cleaning supplies. Okay. Actually, I buy what Lindy tells me to buy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you buy what Lindy tells you to buy, but I mean, that's a pretty classic gender role right there, if I do say so myself. But I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's fine. I know. I'm, it's fine. I don't care. And yeah. she, has, she has particular desires as far as her cleaning supplies. I'll go to Costco and she'll tell me what to buy. So I think media is one of the big influences. And I think that there are certainly some advertisements nowadays that show women in the workplace. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it never happens. Yeah. But it doesn't happen as often as it should. I think economics, I think, and, and the education and the workforce, education became more accessible to women mm-hmm. because it didn't used to be. And because of the economic condition, there are a lot of two-earner households. Mm-hmm. And yes. so women then entered the workforce. And I think once they entered the workforce, then that starts that whole idea of we should be getting that equal pay for equal work, which mm-hmm. you know, should be happening, but it doesn't happen all across the board. And so I think those are things that have started to drive the way we think about feminism and masculinity in a different way. And then religion. There are certainly some religions who are more patriarchal mm-hmm. in th- their design. And so that can have an influence, certainly, on the roles that men and women play in marriages. I, I think the other thing that I just thought of is sports. Mm. Now, I saw this interesting thing, and that I think this is appropriate to this subject. It was a picture, and it was either the Boston Marathon or the New York Marathon. And this was not that long ago may have been 20, 30 years ago. And at that time, I didn't realize this, it was only open to men. Hmm. And so you had to be a male to run in the marathon and some woman got somehow snuck in and started running. So the pictures are of the officials dragging her off the course Hmm. because for some reason, a woman couldn't run a marathon. And so I think one of the things that has certainly changed in a good way 
is the acceptance of women in sports and soccer, yeah. Yeah. especially. I think I don't follow sports that much, but I know soccer is a big one. I think basketball is mm-hmm. certainly tennis. I don't know what the others are, but I I think that nowadays, you, you know, when I was growing up, you know, in high school, the females didn't play sports mm. certainly at okay. all, and now I think in every high school they do. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds weird to me. Yeah, it didn't used to be that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I can't imagine there being a sport and not like because in my high school, if there was a boys' team. There was almost always a girls team. I mean, as long as there's enough interest, right? Right. Like, Here's my plug for government a little bit. It was Title Nine is the thing that changed that. Okay. And so the government came in and said, you have to do this. Okay. And here's some money to do it. And so it was one of the things that was forced on school districts by government, which was tended, I, I think, ended up being a good thing. Yeah. And so going back to what you said about economics a little bit, I think to a big driving force. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, but I think the fact that how high single motherhood, the rate of single motherhood is today, because that's fairly high and maybe that's well, not I necess- think compared to what it used to be. Yeah. Yes, it's very high. And so that has a direct impact on someone's economic status. I mean, because if you're a single mother and there's no father around to help care for that child and help provide, you're stuck trying to work a job and also pay for daycare. That can be really, really tough, you know, or especially for a woman who maybe finds herself with multiple kids and trying to provide for multiple kids on her own. I mean, I've known women like that and man, it can be really, really challenging and that can have ramifications for, I mean, generations because. Right. And I, that's why I think, and again, we, you and I try and stay away from politics, but I think we need to help more. Yeah. Because, you know, the the woman wants to get out there and support the family, but there's, I think the, the big issue is about daycare mm-hmm. and then also what happens. So if you're a single parent, I mean, this is true. If you're a single father or a single mother, Mm -hmm. you know, the child's in school gets sick, you're at a job. What do you do? Yeah. And so you're really stuck. Although I I certainly know that two parent families who are both in the workforce in some ways deal with the same thing just a little bit differently. They have more money, Mm -hmm. but one of them is going to have to take off work. Yeah. And so it becomes one of those things that falls into, okay. Who, who takes off work? Is it always going to be the mother? Is it going to be the father? Or should it be a shared task? Which I think it should be a shared task, but. Well, or, and I would even you know, argue. It depends on the family. Exactly. Well, and I would also say, you know, the career. So, you know, I, very much, I think it would depend on who has what career, you right. know, I mean, because different careers, it might be easier for someone to come in and cover for you than someone else. So, I mean, I don't know, like, let's say for example, a nurse versus a school teacher, right? right. If one right. parent is a nurse, one parent is a school teacher. Well, maybe, and I'm not saying this is true across the board, and I'm not trying to say one job is more important than the other. I want to I want to make that clear off the bat because I have a lot, a lot, a lot of respect for both professions, right? But maybe it's easier for the teacher in that instance to take off work because it's easier for her to find a sub. So, I mean, I think it kind of depends on, you know, the chosen profession of right the family. I, and, I agree. I mean, teachers have a whole structure that's set up, you know, in order to yeah. make sure somebody to 
step into it. So I think that, you know, as you think about gender roles, Mm -hmm. what's important is to be able to talk about it. And so one of the things I see in the office a lot with couples is that men have trouble with the emotional piece. And I've probably mentioned this before, that their wives, and I use this example, 100 years ago, you know, the female would have been glad to have a roof over her head and the husband who goes out and farms the land and Mm -hmm. raises the kids. Well, that's different now. And so what women want, and I think rightly so, is more of an emotional connection Mm -hmm. from their husbands. But yet we haven't caught up in our culture with raising men to be emotionally intelligent. Now, there's certainly some who are. I don't want to paint everyone, but you know, and I do want to acknowledge I see the marriages that are struggling, certainly. And so there's some issue that brings them into my office. But often it's this idea that the man sees his role as going out and earning the money. And when he comes home, he wants to be taken care of. And he doesn't necessarily want to have to be emotionally available for his spouse. And it's one of the things I have to help men learn to change Mm -hmm. that our wives have different expectations now and they should. Yeah. And that I really believe it's just a skill Mm -hmm. that, that men can learn. And so a lot of my practice is about helping men understand that and how to do it. Yeah. So I just thought of something that I think has a major, major impact that I don't know why we didn't think of before. And that is the prevalent use of birth control. Uh I think that has a huge effect on gender roles today because, I mean, I think birth control became more, I think it was just starting to be kind of become standard practice in like maybe the 50s or 60s, I want to say. Yeah. And so, I mean, but before then, if you were married, you either had lots of kids or you just didn't have sex. Those were your only two right. options. That's and right. and so couples who chose to continue to be sexually active, the women almost had to stay home because she mm-hmm. had she kept having kids over and over and over again. And, you know, that's not the case anymore. You also think of in the 1800s, the roles then it was very much bigger families were better because the more kids you had, the more help you had on the farm or, you know, on the homestead or however, you know, whatever it was you did to provide, the more kids you had, the better. That is not the case today. And not that there's anything wrong with having big families. And some people certainly do love to have a big family. They just love having kids and taking care of kids. But I think the average child per couple in the United States today is like 1.5, I think. Right. And I think that's probably more, I I would think, economic consideration. I I think so, too. Yeah, I think that definitely has a factor. But I mean, birth control had a huge role in, you know, I guess maybe the advancement of feminism, because all of a sudden a woman can choose not to have a child. And so, you know, I, I think that plays a huge role in it. All right. So next week, we're going to do something different again. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So we're going to title it Unconventional Wisdom. So Mark and I are each going to come up with five pieces of wisdom, which is just kind of, I guess, general advice or I guess tips that we think are worth sharing. And we're not going to do an outline. We're not going to talk about them at all off air. We're going to save it all for the podcast. So it's very organic. It's going to be a lot of fun. Right. And you used the term earlier life hacks, which I kind of like. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We'll see y'all next week. 
Have a question for Dr. Burton? How about a topic you'd like us to cover? Send us an email at mentalhealthpod21 at gmail.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Liz Lang. Music is by Audio Lounge. 